0: G'day. Thanks for downloading the show. This is Better Than Yesterday. Susie Burke's on the show today. Um, this podcast is free to listen to. It's not free to make. So to pay for the people that help make me, help me make this show. <laughs> they don't make me make the show. I do it when i own on I occasionally play an ad. You might hear me selling you something. You might hear something that is referential to the things you've been looking at and whatever cookies are on your phone. So you're either going to hear an ad or not. And then Susie Burke's going to say something. So here we go.
1: it's a cognitive bias, I suppose. It's a framework that we use to operate in the world. And it goes something like, this is the system that is familiar to me that I've always lived in. And therefore it feels very strongly to me that I am justified in thinking that this is the best system and this is the system that should continue. Because this is the system I know and this is the system that, as far as I'm concerned, has always been here. And there's no doubt that having a richness of fossil fuel powered things is lovely and wonderful so there's a lot in that to want to protect and defend so you know that's just one of the many cognitive sort of obstacles that we can have
0: that is environmental psychologist therapist climate activist and parent dr susie burke this is better than yesterday Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsburg. Thanks for listening to the show. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I'm Osher Ginsburg, and this is a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. Something you hear on the show will help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. That's the promise on the box. I'm here Mondays and Fridays. Mondays I'm here with a guest. Fridays I'm here with you. Um, you can also check out my other podcast. It's called Idle Australians. I'll do it with James Matheson and Pod, which you'll find with Charlie Clawson. Thanks for all the feedback. Uh, send us your email at gmail.com. Is where you can email me. It's super easy to find me, and I'm really grateful for it. Thanks a lot. To tell you about my guest today, Dr. Susie Burke is an environmental psychologist. She's a therapist. She's a climate change campaigner, uh, she's got a background in individual psychological therapy, couples therapy, group work, etc. But she she works now. She works out in um, Castlemaine in Victoria, and She basically consults with councils, with groups, with organisations. She runs workshops and she has one-on-one sessions and sessions with parents, helping people cope and come to terms with climate change and associated disasters. She's an extraordinary person. Her current interests are around the role that psychology plays in helping us understand, I guess, the causes, the impacts, and the solutions to climate change and other environmental threats, including natural disasters, which are on the up, as you've noticed. She works in the realm of helping people prepare for psychological first aid, particularly those who are in first responding uh, roles. She's written other resources, such as a Climate Change Empowerment Handbook and helping people raise chil- raising children in a climate-altered world. She's a great human being. And I'm, I reached out to her because I, once I found out about the kind of work that she was doing, I'm like, this sounds like someone I you know, I need to speak with. And I'm really grateful that we could. You can find out more about Susie, susieburke.com.au. So enjoy. This is uh, Susie Burke. Hello there, Susie.
1: Hello. How are you? Very well. It looks like it's cold where you are as well. Oh, it's cold.
0: It's probably not Castlemaine cold, but it's cold for this Queenslander. I'm in Sydney. These soon, we're not getting locked down, but come on, man. We just got more restrictions come in.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know, man. It's, uh, it's a tricky spot, this one. How are you today, Susie? I just put a baby to bed, so just...
1: Oh, oh did you? Oh. Yeah. All so, this clash?
0: At, for now. <laughs> he's he's doing pretty well he's um we taught him how to self settle about nine months bit bit late apparently but we taught him how to get himself to sleep at about nine months old and Audrey was noticing yesterday my wife was noticing that he already is um self regulating he's got a very busy brain like his dad he's got a very very busy brain Yesterday, a neighbor was over for a cup of tea and he was running around in circles. He was getting super, you know, bumping into things and knocking things over and starting to, you know, the fabric of space time was starting to come apart. And he just went, Wiggles. And he went and took himself off to his little couch and he sat on his couch, grabbed his bunny remote. And he, because he knows, like, if I sit down, everything's cool. So he, it was yeah. amazing. Kids, not even two. Isn't
1: that beautiful? That's so gorgeous. He
0: just, <laughs> Yeah, he, but he could tell, look, like, oh, this I don't like the way this feels.
1: Oh, yeah, I need to calm myself down.
0: I need to I need to just chill out for a sec. And that was kind of great. You know, I was really grateful that he had that. I don't know how much of that I got as a young man. I had to learn that sort of self-regulation as an adult. Anyway, Susie, I'm grateful. to <laughs> I'm really happy to speak with you today, Susie. Thanks for talking to me. You're in Castlemaine in Victoria?
1: I am, yes.
0: Yeah, if you're from Queensland, it's Castlemaine because that's where the beer comes from.
1: Mm, yes, and if you are in Castleman, it's Castleman.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's where the that's where the brewery that made Forex originally was, and then it somehow I don't know got to Queensland. I don't know, and they made they made Forex. How long have you been in Castleman?
1: Uh, about twenty two years.
0: Yeah, what do you like about?
1: Yeah, it? Yeah, I have a twenty I have a twenty two year old turned up with him as a three month old baby. <laughs> that's
0: yeah. fantastic. That's how I remember. What do you like about living there?
1: Oh, it's an awesome community. Yeah. Lots of very. Active people, people who you know, really involved in social issues. We came up here because we were just having a young family and there was a starter school and we moved into an eco-village. So we were into sort of that communal living. We don't live there anymore, but it's beautiful, the climate's great, cold in the winter, which is lovely, hideous hot summers. And usually when we get to February, everybody goes. Whose idea was it to come and live in Castlemaine? <laughs> because we don't
0: like it anymore. So it's harsh. <laughs> so a couple of interesting things that you just mentioned there. Uh, Steiner School, I've had a few people on the show who either went to Steiner School or sent their kids to a Steiner School. It's a, it's a different modality of of education. I think most people would know about it and that. There's just no right angles is one. <laughs> but yes. what's special about the way a kid learns at a Steiner School?
1: Well, it's a very holistic education. I mean, there's a whole lot of very different things about it, but it really does, you know, make you pay attention to the environment, to care for the natural environment, to care for the physical growth of the child as much as the intellectual and the emotional growth of the child. So, you know, there are so many reasons. And it also drops you into a group of parents that you're probably likely to share a lot of values with, which is really important. Yeah. The school grounds are beautiful. You know, when we first turned up, which was even before we had babies, which was sort of 25 years ago and had a look at it, there were just full of sticks in the ground and it was very dry. It must have been February. I don't know why we can't. But, um, you know, it's it, you know, I think a beautiful environment is gorgeous. You know, it's a gorgeous backdrop in which to be growing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As a psychologist, what was it that attracted you to that kind of
1: education for your kid? I'm not sure that I really came at it as a psychologist. I probably more came at it as somebody who was really cared cared about the environment, and we were living in an intentional community at the time. So I was I guess I was choosing that. And you know, I think so much about mainstream education misses a whole lot of the connection with the earth and I wanted to bring my children up with environmental values and I felt that that was perhaps a shortcut Mm. way of being able to have that echoed what we were doing Uh at home echoed in the school as well.
0: Did it work?
1: Well my daughter was one of the three children in who started the school strikes uh following in Greta's uh, awesome footsteps. So that worked. But this is a really good question, Osha. As a parent, welcome to the uh, journey of being a parent and trying to work out at what point your carbon footprint, you can stop taking responsibility for your children's carbon footprint. So, you know, I talk a lot with people about how to bring up your children with environmental values. And when we moved into town out of our uh, the eco-village, we said to the boys, because the boy, Malou, my daughter, was too young. But we said to the kids, okay, we're not burning fossil fuels to drive you around anymore. You're on your bikes. So they got on their bikes. They got obsessed with their bikes. Now all they want to do in their life is ride bikes. So they now burn fossil fuels to travel to the other side of the world, which they are there at the moment, so that they can race, road bikes in one case and mountain bikes in the other case, uh, because that's all they can imagine that they would ever want to do. I feel quite responsible for that. But then my daughter started the school strike. So then I'm not really sure whether I'm winning or losing in the I'm responsible for my children's carbon footprint sort of stakes at the moment. But it's it's a dilemma
0: Hang on, so what are you, your sons are pro-cyclists?
1: They're not pro-cyclists yet. This is what they would dearly love to be. So one of them's in a continental team, working, uh, riding for Rad Team Tyrol, in living in Innsbruck, and the other one is a mountain biker, so he's living in Frodelberg, uh, which is also in Austria, and oh. uh, riding in mountain bike races. Oh,
0: amazing. So as a cyclist, that, that thrills me completely, but perhaps the actions of your daughter are offsetting the actions of your son. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. And the other thing, Osha, that I've done through my life is I've been trying to bring up my parents with environmental values and, you know, impose my environmental values on them, of course, which, you know, a lot of people take exception to. But you can't help but, you know, bring up your children in line with your values. So several years ago I decided that we would take family holidays and it would involve going on protest camps, you know, environmental protest camps. So in 2015 I've got this awesome photograph of myself Out in the shipping lanes in Newcastle, it was Mother's Day, May 2015, I think. It was this big protest there. And there we are, all are with thousands of other people, my children and a whole lot of their friends that we piled into a car and drove from here to Newcastle to you know, go out into the shipping lane. So that was one of our family holidays. And another family holiday, we went up to the Adani mine to the Camp Bimbi, which is, you know, the support camp for helping support the protesters. And, you know, our children learned how to climb trees with ropes and things like that so that they can rig themselves up from, you know, coal digging machinery and, you know, do these sorts of things. So, and, you know, one needs to go on a family holiday, so one may as well go and make it educational. <laughs> I
0: absolutely love it. At what point, Susie, you're, I mean, you're an incredibly qualified psychologist. You're an uh, adjunct associate professor out of, out of UQ. At what point in your own life and your own journey did you start to become aware of your own impact on the world and that, when did it become important to you to start trying to help others understand how our modern way of life is impacting our ability to survive?
1: Oh well, look. To be honest, I do remember when I was about fourteen, removing the bins from the kitchen and replacing them with a recycling and a you know a this and a that bin, and insisting that the family shifted all of that. So for some reason, it started when I was an adolescent, actually at the same age that Greta and the kids in Australia were starting to get out on the get out on the streets and protest. So for quite a long time.
0: And from what was the first kind of move from there? Did, did you have fights with your parents about how come we're, you know, driving a Kingswood, why aren't we riding bikes?
1: <laughs> how did you know that we had a
0: Kingswood? <laughs> I'm guessing we're of similar age and, like, it was two choices. It was Kingswood <laughs> or Falcon, so... <laughs>
1: Uh, we then we moved on to the Swedish cars. Ah. My father was a, a spinal injury rehab specialist, so we always had to then have a car that had a roll bar just in case the the, the terrible happened. And in those days, it was only Saabs and Volvos. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah, so did I have? Did I begin with having arguments with my parents? Well, yes. And interestingly, the literature shows that it's the young girls, young teenage girls, who. Are the best communicators in terms of being able to persuade, usually their fathers, to listen to their climate concerns and make changes? So, this is something that I read in Rebecca Huntley's book around communicating about climate change. She's an Australian researcher. And that was one of the things that stood out me because we've been really interested looking at the young people and their participation in climate action and the climate school strikes and things like that and the girls do stand out as being very good uh, communicators so not only are they verbally dexterous and they're passionate but they're also using the relationship that they have with a parent who you know largely wants to do what is best for his child so they're awesome communicators
0: I, we have a 17-year-old uh, teenage girl in our house, in fact, and she is, I can absolutely attest to that. She's very persuasive, very forthright, and uh, how shall I put this, very uh, assertive in making sure that we understand her point of view and what she wants to do.
1: Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting. One of my colleagues, Winifred Lewis, she's actually at the University of Queensland. She's a social psychologist and her expertise is in um, she's a peace psychologist as well. It's in protest movements and people, people who are activists. And I was looking at some of her research recently and she was looking at. Is it about communicating information? Is it an information gap problem? And the research shows really clearly that now the problem with climate change is not an information gap problem. There's loads of information. We get it, 99% of climate scientists agree that humans are driving, you know, this dangerous climate change. It's a trust gap problem, and that's why... The young people who are in a relationship with people, you know, their their parents or their family members can often be quite persuasive. Um, But if you take that a little bit further afield, it also gives us a whole lot of insights into what do we need to put our emphasis on when we are trying to communicate our views or our concerns about climate change. It's all about actually having to build bridges of trust between ourselves and the person that we're listening to.
0: Can you explain a bit more about what a trust gap looks like and maybe something outside of climate communication, say just like in a personal relationship? How what can a trust gap look like, just to help us understand what that is?
1: Well, let's take an example then of a community the size of a shire, you know, that is governed by a council. So very often there will be different groups of people in your community that have got different worldviews. They might have different political views, they might be at different stages in their life and they are within their own circle of, of trust and so the people that they are most easily able to learn things from and change their behavior in accordance with are going to be the people that are within their group and so that the gap is then between one group who listens to their own experts and listens to their own people and another group in your society who might have different views and and have different values and who are not easily able to be persuasive to members of the other group. And so that's where the gap is. And so if you're wanting to talk to another group, you have to show that in some way you belong to the other group and demonstrate how, you know, you are similar to them in many important ways as well. And you can do that by looking for shared values. I mean, you and I, we've already talked about the fact that we share, we've got children in our world that we love dearly and are going to want the best for. So that's an enormous point of connection. And we bridge our differences by focusing and talking in the first instance about those things that where we relate together.
0: What's the gap there with people in power? Say, for example, I don't know, an acting Prime Minister who are (laughs) faced with such Facts, such glaring facts, what's the gap between those facts and action? Surely it's got to be more than just a trust gap, Susie.
1: Yes, well, a trust gap is perhaps not the only way of thinking about the psychological barriers or the barriers, some of which are psychological to actually taking action doing mm. something about climate change because. You know, of course, when it comes to politicians, there's vested interests that are at play as well and there's political cycles and there's, you know, protecting, you know, one's own job and things like that. But if we were to just back back a little bit and talk about, well, what are some of those psychological barriers to being able to take action on climate change? As you say, it's not a lack of information because we've got heaps of information. We've also, a bit like with the chlorofluorocarbons. we've also got heaps of information about what we need to do in order to restore a safe climate. We need to get off coal and gas immediately. We need to make a transition to a zero carbon economy and we need to do that in a just and equitable way and we know how to do that. These are solvable problems but they're enormously complex because of a whole lot of Suppose psychological factors as well. And so one of them that I've uh, read a little bit about is one called system justification. So system justification is, it's a cognitive bias, I suppose. It's a framework that we use to operate in the world. And it goes something like, this is the system that is familiar to me, that I've always lived in. And therefore, it feels very strongly to me that I am justified in thinking that this is the best system and this is the system that should continue because this is the system I know and this is the system that, as far as I'm concerned, has always been here. And there's no doubt that having a richness of fossil fuel-powered things is lovely and wonderful. So there's a lot in that to want to protect and defend. So, you know, that's just one of the many cognitive sort of obstacles that
0: we can have system justification that what a fantastic thing it's almost like i don't know if you've lived your whole life not knowing what boats are and thinking well i walk on land that's all i ever do and someone says well here's a boat like well no no i can't possibly do that because all i know is land and there's no way i'm going out there even though you know you're telling me it's safe i can't possibly do that because as far as i'm concerned i only walk on land that's really, that's really quite fascinating. We initially connected because I was fascinated with your work around, I guess something that I've had to face quite stringently. I went through a very, very, very troubling time about seven years or so ago. I had a horrible, horrible, horrible breakdown, um, ended up with episodes of psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusion triggered by climate anxiety. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. just regular climate anxiety. It was climate anxiety that led me to, I ended up on antipsychotics. It was bloody horrible. Mm -hmm. It was really, really Mm bad. And, the real trick there, Susie, was that I was having an irrational fear reaction to something that it was rationally okay to be really terrified of. <laughs> so yeah, I, always, of I used to say to my psychiatrist, why can't I be afraid of geese? Why can't I be afraid of scaffolding? Why can't why can't I have this from something, a red car? Like, why do I have be having to have this horrible, horrible fear reaction to something that is okay to have a fear reaction to? We are, Mm. as tiny little humans, we are individually quite restricted to what we can do by ourselves. Like obviously when we're getting large groups of people and block coal shipping lines in Newcastle, that's another story. But when we are just by ourselves and we're talking to our kids that are worried... That's kind of where we can take meaningful action within our homes, within our families, which is why I reached out to you, because I remember having a conversation with our eldest, actually, it was around the time of the black summer bushfires. We're having, you know, we live 85 kilometers from the fire front, and ash was falling in our backyard. And she asked me, are we safe? And I was able to tell her, yeah, we're we're okay. But I know people that live much, much, much closer to those fires, and they were not. And I can't imagine what it would be like to try to have those kind of conversations with your kids. And these are conversations that we are going to have to have more and more and more. So I was hoping we could speak a little about how can you speak to your kids about the realities of what we're facing in the coming decades without scaring the shit out of them and giving them... Fucking super climate anxiety some ends up on antipsychotics.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to start at the place of just noting how far down the track you are that you can sit there and have a chuckle to yourself about what must have been an absolutely awful thing. And oh, yeah.
0: Susie, I to was- To be able
1: to laugh about it now.
0: I couldn't have, like I was thinking about it last night, I came home from work I was late, you know, I don't know, something AM, right? And it's the middle of winter and I got home to my house and I, I plugged my car in because I'm, you know, virtually, virtually signaling on my podcast to talk about how I plug my electric car in. Right. I plugged my car in and I exhaled and I saw no condensation. And I thought to myself, you know what, five years ago I would have had a panic attack because that would have meant it's not cold enough. It should be colder. It's not cold enough. We're fucked. And I would have had a panic attack at two in the morning because I didn't see condensation coming out of my mouth. And last night I plugged my car in, I didn't see condensation coming out of my mouth. I went, that's interesting. And I walked mm-hmm. inside and had a snack and went to bed. And so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's, and even so, like Brie, who helps me with my research, she emailed me last night. She going, look, there's some stuff I'm going to put in the Susie research. just want to make sure it's okay with you. And I said, oh, thank you for checking. But part of it is, it's just, it's important that every day. I expose myself to the things that frighten me, and I find that's kind of like running 10Ks every day. If you run 10Ks every day, running 10Ks is easy, all right? But if you've never run 10Ks, saying I'm going to go run 10 k sounds like the biggest, most frightening thing in the world, right? So if I expose myself every day, it stays easy. If I don't expose myself every day, it starts to get scary again. It's still uncomfortable, but I'm willing to be with how uncomfortable it is.
1: Yeah, so what you're talking about is how it's the avoidance of the anxious feelings that sets up the anxiety disorder and by not allowing yourself to avoid the things that might give you a whole lot of really uncomfortable feelings and just trusting that uncomfortable feelings don't kill you. They can be really painful and really uncomfortable and really frightening, but you can manage them, and enables you to be able to keep on going and, you know, doing things that gives you a rich and full life. Yeah. I was just thinking, and I will come back to your question about how do we talk about kids, but I was just thinking as you were talking about the things that you've gone through and around the thinking about uh, the awfulness of climate change and that being and being terrified of it, being rational and appropriate and deserved because this, you know, the trajectories that we are on are not good and we are right to be frightened about it for two reasons one because climate change itself has its own feedback loops and its own momentum plus we've got this you know insufficient action with leaders and decision makers and you know businesses and governments all over the world so for those two reasons not just climate change it makes us anxious it's government and big businesses and decision makers that make us anxious as well we need to give them their due responsibility, make them take their responsibility for our uh, distressing feelings, not just a climate change problem. But one of the people that I have enjoyed listening to is Rosemary Randall, who's a psychotherapist in the UK. And she talks about the different stages that we go through when we're coming to terms with climate change. And I think she starts off with the epiphany and then the shock and then the immersion. And then the action, so, you know, epiphany shock, yep. Uh, Then we get really immersed in the problem of it, and then we might get into taking action about it. And often it's action that's angry action. And this is often the case also with young people. When they get to that point of action, they might often be quite angrily motivated to do it. But then what can often happen next is the burnout, where it just becomes overwhelming. And burnout can you know, manifest in a whole lot of different ways. And possibly yours was a version of burnout from the enormity of thinking and worrying about it. But the next step after that is this transformation where we sort of move, and we have to move through that, where climate change might still be one of the biggest concerns that we have, but we're able to engage with it not to the expense of everything else, so not to the extent that it dominates everything. And we realign all of our priorities and the way in which we live in accordance with the reality of the climate crisis, but we're still living a rich and full life. That doesn't mean rich in a fossil fuel burning sense, but we have now altered our our identity and we are at peace with the way in which we are now engaging with the problem of climate change. And that's what she calls an important, you know, next stage.
0: I am grateful to say that it was hard, but I think I've got there. I think I've got to that point. Mm. And what it took was some really quite radical exposure therapy where I, would, I was doing a, I was shooting a TV show in Fiji and you know, you don't see it living in the city, but I'm here to tell you the sea levels are rising and the effect of increasing weather patterns and increasing swell sizes is eroding that island nation. And I would sit there and wait for the tide to come up And I would sit there for like an hour every day as the tide was coming in and I would watch the ocean come and lap underneath the houses of the village next door that had been there for hundreds of years. And it was horrifying. It was like holding a a straddle position in karate or a squat position for an hour. It was really, really, really painful. But I had meds on board as well that allowed my brain to kind of let go of the kind of rumination and the OCD. And I was doing a lot of writing as well. It was in conjunction with a lot of other stuff. And I did that every day for a month. And I came out the other side of it and I was actually a lot more okay.
1: (laughs) But it was fucking hard, man.
0: It was really hard, Susie. Yes.
1: Yeah. And you're really talking about the importance of actually allowing yourself to go to that deeply painful place and discover that you can survive it and If you can't allow yourself to really feel how frightening it is and and feel how scary it is, the risk is that you either become really, really unwell and you avoid things or you avoid things in in a more sort of mainstream way whereby you just distract yourself endlessly with popular culture or, you know, the other things that we can endlessly distract ourselves with or you can end up doing things with your mind whereby you think well if it really was a problem somebody else would be doing something about it wouldn't they and waiting for a big signal from your world that it's a big problem which is not going to happen because it needs to come from us we're the ones that see the problem we're the ones that have got vested interest in things turning up better because we're we love people you know we love the planet Yes, the importance of actually being allowing yourself to feel it deeply because that's a place it eventually brings up a lot of energy um, to actually move into action.
0: Susie, do you think it's important that we get to that place ourselves before we start talking to our kids about it?
1: Yes, I was going to make that point. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because I can imagine if we're trying to process it at the same time as speaking to our kids, they'll see the fear in our face, they'll hear the fear in our voice, they'll see the irrational reactions to the wind blowing, or what I have I have had that. I watched the wind blowing in the tree and went, oh, "It's happening today," you know, and I wanted to run and hide mm-hmm. under my bed. You're
1: yeah, absolutely right. So we need to find people with whom we can share our deepest concerns and our feelings about it and talk with them about how we're feeling, what we're thinking about it, but also brainstorm with other parents. How do you talk about it with your children and build networks? And They become your support networks. But the other really important part of that is that that keeps you engaged with the problem because one of the things that we can easily do with children is not allow ourselves to think too much about climate change because there are so many other things that we can be delightfully busy about. And, of course, parents always want the best for their children and, there's, you know, you can worry about who your children are friends with or how they're going at school or, you know, what what they're going to end up studying at university. So, again, there's plenty of invitations to not think about it. But, in fact, parents may be the last generation that can actually have a chance of restoring a safe climate for their descendants. And we have a moral and an ethical duty to do that. So we actually have to face climate change and we actually have to do something about it as parents because we have a moral and ethical responsibility to provide for a safe world for our children. That's our job. And so there's two things in that. One is the importance of us engaging with the problem and doing something about it, i.e. our own mitigation activities, so the things that we do to reduce the threat of climate change, voting for the people that are going to bring in the climate policies that will help the world to restore a safe climate. But we also need to be preparing our children for for two things. One, to be able to manage to get their heads around the problem of climate change and to manage the feelings that come up around climate change, but we also have a responsibility to prepare our children to be able to thrive in a climate-altered world. Because children, we, we use this expression, double jeopardy, which is what children face. Children are more vulnerable because of their younger age to climate impacts, so this might not be... Australian children living in cities, but children that are living in vulnerable parts of the country, Torres Strait Island Indigenous children, children in Fiji, children in other parts of the world that live in vulnerable places, are more vulnerable to climate impacts of heat and disasters because of the younger age, plus the double jeopardy is, plus they have a lifetime exposure. So they have a much, much longer exposure to all of these negative climate impacts than we adults do. So we call that this double jeopardy. So
0: I'll give you what my my eldest said to me one day and I'd love to get, you know, just if you could give us an example of how you would respond to something like this. It was during the drought towards the end of the drought of 2019. I think we'd had been in drought for about three or four years here in Sydney. And she came home from school and she said, my geography teacher told me that they built that desalination plant in Cornell as a worst case scenario kind of contingency. And she said, and it's been on, for six months. She said, when they built it, they're like, well, if we ever have to turn this on, we know we're in trouble. She said, and it's been on for six months. What's the way that you can respond to that? Because the kids come home from school with some information that, you know, oh, you know, you're busy getting dinner together. You, is it bin night? You know, have you paid the water bill? Like there's, you know, you're all over the place and your kids come with this very heavy thing that they've brought home from school with some some knowledge that is true, is frightening and comes from a sense of a person of authority, her geography teacher, that she trusts. Mm. What's a way that you can respond to that sort of thing?
1: Well, you might have to, in the first instance, turn off the onions and throw (laughs) the baby a banana just to hold everything because that seems like it's an important moment to turn towards, doesn't it? And she's making a bid there for connection and reassurance and she's needing your best answers and uh yeah so sometimes turning off the stove is what's the first step um but the next thing would be to be asking her how did that make her feel Hmm. because it's interesting to know where she was going with that our guess would be that was really frightening for her so it'd be good if she was invited to talk about how she was feeling and you can then also validate and normalize those feelings by saying yeah I'm not surprised you feel scared that is the scary thing isn't it to hear and to think that yeah I often feel scared about climate change as well and so then you're joining with her and showing that you share that concern as well so that's always first normalize and validate her experience and then the other thing thing that we get parents to think about doing is to ask what does that make them think next (laughs) you know it's interesting to see whether what are they thinking next are they thinking we should do something about it well that's a good thought to follow because one of the three Main coping strategies that we teach people, or that we know people do, is um, there's emotion-focused, problem-focused, and meaning-focused coping strategies. So, doing something about the problem is an example of problem-focused coping. It's a very effective strategy. Action is the antidote to despair. So, if if her next thought is, "We should do something about that," great, right, because that takes her into a place of action. But also the conversation might be around how does she manage those uncomfortable feelings and thoughts? Or you might be saying... This is what I do when I find myself learning something about the planet that's really frightening. And then you share how you've developed your own inner strength muscles. Now, you're the perfect dad in this respect because you've done it. You have worked so hard to develop your own inner strength muscles. And adolescence, the beautiful thing about having teenagers that will come and drop something like that on you at peak busyness in the kitchen is that They're home with you and they're listening to you because once they leave home, you don't get to have so many of those conversations with them. So to be able to welcome those very difficult moments as an opportunity, one of my, you know, in this diminishing window of time for me to talk about how one copes with their emotions. So in emotion-focused coping strategies, there's a whole host of things that we can do to manage the uncomfortable feelings. So that's the other area of of interest and so that would be things like you know the classics are moving your body you know doing exercise dancing going for a run going and throwing you know balls in the hoop with your friends all those things that move your body another one of the way in which we deal with our emotions is we hang out with other people we talk with people who love us or who we love we laugh we get creative we cry we have a cry we do things that release endorphins What would be some others? Oh, we could spend time in nature, go out and be in the very nature that we're frightened is going to be hurt by these increasing temperatures. All those sorts of strategies. Oh, and putting words to your feelings. So actually I should have started with that one because that is one of the best ways in which we deal with our emotions is we put words, we give it a word. Oh, this feeling I've got, it sits right in here in me. It feels like I've got this, you know, lump a round lump and it's red and it's pulsing and it sits right in my, just the top of my diaphragm. I think it's called anxiety, you know, to describe it and to put words to it. Because once you know where the feeling is, you can try to relax around it. You can do breathing exercises, all those sorts of things. So those are all examples of emotion-focused coping. And then the third category is things that we call meaning-focused coping strategies. So these are the ways in which we change our thinking so that we don't freak out and panic, even though sometimes freaking out about the problem is quite rational, appropriate and deserved. It, it's not a place that we want to stay in because it's exhausting and debilitating and sooner or later we'll either fall apart and collapse or we'll go distract ourselves and switch off from the problem. So many focused coping strategies are examples of that um, where we use our thinking to look around and notice how many other people are just like us and care deeply about the environment and, you know, we'll vote for governments that bring in good climate policies and who will make decisions based on, Things that will reduce emissions um, and you know hasten the transition to zero carbon economy, things like that. So it's looking out. So in a disaster, when people are recovering from a disaster, disaster, that's the work that you do with your kids when you teach them to look out for the heroes and the helpers. Something terrible has happened. People are really upset. Oh, and look at all the people that have rushed to help and all of the heroes that were there to to look after people. So that is one important meaning-focused coping strategy. Another one is thinking about how wicked problems have been solved in the past. So that's a great example of the chlorofluorocarbons, you know, that that this was a problem that... Uh, was quite a huge problem. Something in the atmosphere that we were actually able to fix with the concerted cooperation of governments and you know businesses, laws, lawmaking, good clever lawmaking all around the world. And so, getting the young people to think about examples of big wicked problems have been solved, and you know slavery and apartheid and women's vote and all those sorts of things are really good examples because you can also get them to think about or to imagine what must it have been like in those days when women couldn't vote. How on earth were you going to change women who couldn't vote if you weren't allowed to vote for a new law that would say that you could vote? Like, that's a pretty big problem. But, you know, through decades of concerted efforts from people building, building, building a a movement, things changed. And that's what we're seeing at the moment with climate change. There are millions of people around the world who are building a momentum and movement and cooperation and collaboration. So those sorts of, you know, hopeful perspectives But another one of the meaning-focused coping strategies that we can really look at is to be thinking about how, what an opportunity this is, solving the climate crisis, to use our imagination. We can't actually use the same thinking that got us into this mess to get us out of this mess. Naomi Klein, who's a great, awesome climate writer, says, there are no non-radical options left. Well, that's kind of exciting. That's not to say that you know we have to find the silver bullet solutions, but we actually have to transform our societies. We have to become more cooperative, more sharing, more able to live more interdependently with each other. And there's lots of opportunities for good things to come out of that. So that's those are other ways in which you can have those conversations with children.
0: And, and thank you so much because you've just wrapped up something that I, I know that I, I've done kind of okay. Um, in the conversations that we have had. Part of this, and I, I did see, I think it was um, your friends and mine at Darnie put out an ad or something like that, you, we can all be the change in the world, you know, this idea of putting it onto individual choice. You mentioned system justification. The concept, I think it's around, I first read about it in racism, it's like just why try to end racism in the current system, destroy the current system and create a new system where there is no racism? Because the current system is built on racism. So where is the line? Because if you, if you try to completely mitigate your own personal choice, eventually it's trying to like, literally trying to hold back the high tide with a rake. You just, you'll just become flabbergasted and powerless. At some point, we simply have to reject, no, fuck you. I do not want my electricity to come from there. No, I do not want my superannuation to be invested there. No, I I'd reject the idea that it is legal to sell I don't know, single-use products in plastic that can't be broken down. This is a systemic problem. It's not up to me to reject it. It's up to legislation to reject it, because we cannot possibly expect the kind of radical change that Naomi Klein speaks about if those gigantic systemic things aren't taking place. Where is there is the line, do you think, between your own personal action and not getting flabbergasted that you can't control at all?
1: Oh, well, that's a really good question. So, I'm going to respond to that in a few different ways because there's a lot in what you just said. So when we talk about that problem-focused coping strategies, which is the things that you can do, we always talk to people about the difference between, you know, individual level, you know, things that you can do, which are important because they, you know, they can assuage your guilt in the moment and they can strengthen your identity of, you know, I'm somebody who cares about the environment. They don't actually solve climate change. So there's always the importance then of the group actions as well because then whatever you do gets magnified and then of course you get the comfort of being in a group and you're looking out for the heroes and the helpers and you're starting to realise that you're not alone in this and there's an enormous comfort in that as well plus your action is magnified And then there's the different levels. So there's your household street level and then there's the societal level and civic engagement. And what we know with young people is that a predictor of positive development for young people, which is, you know, young people who are thriving in their 20s, is through their childhood and their adolescence comes from being involved in their community and being involved civically, so civic participation. And examples of that are the big, protests the um the writing to the members of parliament that are your local ones like the kids did here sitting out in front of the you know national party members office day after day after day after day to get a hearing to make a point you know those sorts of big action things in order to change the or take away the social license really that's what these protests are are about taking away the social license to pollute and to damage the planet in exactly the way that you were talking about you know that there has to come a time where you go "Uh uh-uh no not doing that anymore that's what the kids did they walk out of school they go no not going to school anymore you need to set a climate policy that you know gets us off gas and coal now well actually they very politely said by 2030 which was good because they were working very hard and <laughs> young people to look for just and equitable solutions and that was a good amount of time to give you know fossil fuel communities an opportunity to make a you know a healthy transition into you know, other viable you know economic stimulating jobs that will nurture the community.
0: Just before we round the home straight um, with Susie Burke, I wanted to stop for a second and tell you about something completely different. It's a podcast I do with James Matheson called Idle Australians, I-D-L-E-A-U-S-T-R-A-L-A-N-S, Australians. Yeah, I spelled it very quickly, but that's how you spell it. James Matheson and I used to make TV together on cable and then on free to wear tv together and we have stayed mates the whole time and I'm really grateful to make a show with him about the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture and this week we talked a bit about the youth radio network in Australia called Triple J and how it began and also what it does now we spoke to a couple of great people from the lineup of Triple J from back in the 70s and from right now It's just an episode full of fantastic rock and roll stories and gives you a real great perspective on why it's important to encourage the arts and and champion the arts. And here's just a little taste. I remember doing my homework in 1990. I was 16 years old and I I was listening, I was searching around. Someone at school had said, they're doing test broadcasts. Have a look around, you can hear it. I heard this song, Cult of Personality by Living Colour. And then so many young Australians and even older Australians have memories just like that of Double J and and Triple J. So on this episode, we thought we'd take a little bit of an exploration with one of the actual pioneers. You can find Idle Australians where you found this podcast, I-D-L-E Australians, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You might hear an ad right now. If you do, thanks for helping me keep the lights on. If you don't, we're getting straight back to Susie life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector
1: guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
0: at what point can we go okay that's that is all i can do and maybe all i can do is just sort out my recycling right At what point can we go, you know, Susie's here talking about going to protests, but I have a hard time getting out of the house. I have a tricky time making eye contact with people. I don't know if I can do that. Mm. At what point is it okay to go, that's enough for me? I can still care, but that's enough for me.
1: No, well, you're absolutely right that that you need to work within what you're capable of doing and not beat yourself up and feel utterly guilty about not doing more if you don't think that you know, at that time or in that way you can do more. Given that, it's actually the problem of the system that is the big problem. It's not for individuals to solve on their own. Mm. But I did love reading an article once of a parent, she was American, and she was saying that there were some days when she just was exhausted and she didn't have time to do the climate action that she would have liked to and so on those days she had a list of telephone numbers in her phone of politicians that she knew would have their message bank on and she wouldn't actually have to speak to them and so on the days when she was short of time she rang the message bank because she knew that she could then just leave a 30 second message saying what she wanted to say and I thought Oh, wow, that's such a creative way of recognising I'm not up for a conversation with a real human being who might get defensive or I, might, I don't want to have to talk to the minister himself because I'd fall apart. I'll just leave a message. So there are often little ways in which a person can continue to push, push, demand for change without it taking in an enormous amount of energy. And so that was the bit that I wanted to pick up on too, what you were talking about with the need for system change this is where we need our imaginations to flourish and it's not necessarily going to happen in the halls of power it happens in the communities and many people are familiar with the transition town movement which began in the uk with this guy rob hopkins and this was a community grassroots movement which is still continuing to tackle the twin problems of peak oil and climate change and it was It's efforts in communities to just transform the way in which communities run at a neighborhood or a shire level without waiting for legislation to be passed. It's just getting out there and doing it, but also using your imagination to come up with recreative solutions and starting with the idea of the possible and then asking yourself, you know, well, what if things turned out okay? And, you know, moving on from there and thinking out of the box. And so that's the space of enormous potential, and in fact, we're absolutely dependent on thinking out of the box to be able to reduce our emissions sufficiently in the next few years in order to restore a safe climate. We have to think out of the box, and it's not going to be the people who are in charge who will be doing that. It's us.
0: You mentioned before the ongoing effects of climate change on our kids, and it cannot be understated, the effects of living under that kind of stress or that kind of anxiety for an entire adolescence, an entire young adulthood, an entire adulthood, an entire lifetime would have gigantic health effects on you, gigantic effects on your life expectancy, gigantic effects on your ability to hold down a relationship. How can we best model behaviour for our kids? What are some things that we can do now I guess, to teach our kids to be resilient? What are some things we can do?
1: Well, I'll just go back to reiterating that it's really largely all of the things that we teach them and show them that we and that we model in emotion-focused coping, you know, how to calm yourself down when you're upset, how to wind yourself up, build yourself back up again when you're feeling depressed. That's all that emotion regulation stuff. And then the problem-focused coping, how to, when you're feeling upset or stressed or distressed about something, to see if there are things that you can do to actually solve the problem that's causing the distress or ameliorate the problem, and then the meaning-focused coping. But the fourth thing that I would say we really need to show our children, and this needs to be shown from the top all the way down and from the bottom all the way up, is we're doing something about it because when the children think that we're not doing anything about it, when they can't see the heroes and helpers, when they can't see all of the, you know, millions of people around the world that are actually doing something about it, and they're thinking that we're not doing anything about it. And they're thinking, shit, <laughs> that's terrible. That's just so terrible. And I read this fantastic quote once. It was this woman, Joelle Gerges. The gist of it was that one of the most psychologically distressing things can be seeing that there's a problem and not seeing that the people who are in charge of keeping you safe are actually doing anything about it. So we need to show them we're doing something about it by doing something about
0: it. You've just encapsulated, like, that's the forehead-slapping gobsmackery that I have when I see our leaders hold lumps of coal in Parliament. Like, you're the people who are supposed to look after us. What is this? That's not looking after us. I didn't even finish high school on a are in Trouble. Like, I finished high school, well, not very well. You've just described perfectly... How difficult it is. And so, if I can't see it, are you saying that I need to communicate to my kids? Here's some people who are, you say, look for the heroes and helpers. Here's this person working on, you know, reclaiming e-waste. Here's this person in our community doing this thing. Here's our front yard where we grow some vegetables. Here's our little egg timer that we have in our shower. So we only take four minute showers. Here's some ways that we are helping. And this, it's showing them, even though they might be, as you mentioned, kind of a little insignificant in the grand scheme of things, these are things that are going to help them psychologically keep safe.
1: Yes. Yeah. And invite those people over for dinner, you know, so you can sit and chat with them and your teenagers have to sit there and make eye contact and chat as well. It's all great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm so grateful that we got the chance to speak today because... Uh, look, when I was really, really sick, my brain was convincing me that no one cared. When I was really sick, my brain was convincing me. And it's, it's an, I guess it's an understandable because it can feel like nothing's changing and no one cares and no one's doing a damn thing. But you are a fantastic reality check because you are proving, and uh, you know, I know you're a part of a much greater community, you are proving that there's fuck, tons of people who care and tons of people who are really, really out and about. And Susie, I really hope the next time you want to paddle into a coal shipping line in Newcastle, you invite me because I've got a stand-up paddleboard and a great wetsuit and I'd, I'd dearly love to come and join you on that.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I will. I was actually thinking that the next family holiday was to go down to the Tarkine and, you know, shimmy up the trees up there and defend the lungs of the earth from <laughs> destruction by the Tasmanian government. But, you know, shipping lanes are good as well.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of closer and we can't really leave New South Wales at the moment. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Tazzy will let us in right about now, I'm not with a spicy cough <laughs> hanging around our neighborhood. You're just the best, Susie. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that, you know, workshops and seminars and, you know, are such a part of the work you do and that people can access you and people can, you know, bring you uh, probably virtually at the moment into their workplaces and help them understand a little more about how they might be able to have best practice in their own businesses and things as they go forth. Because that really is the only path. The time for just ignoring the externalities of the impacts of our businesses is gone. There's no way we can Mm -hmm. do that now. And I'm grateful that we got a chance to speak today. You're the best. And I hope next time I'm a Castleman, I can come and grab a coffee with you and maybe we can go ride a bicycle with your kids. That'd be awesome.
1: (laughs) That'd be wonderful. You'd be very welcome, share. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And that was Susie Burke. You can find out more about Susie Burke at Susie, S-U-S-I-E, Burke, B-U-R-K-E dot ecomau dot Dr. Susie Burke. She's fantastic. She's a great human being. And, you know, it should give you buoyancy in your heart that there are incredibly smart, empathic, lovely human beings like Susie working hard to help us all figure out how we're going to figure this out. All right. The work she's doing isn't mainstream yet, but mark my words, it absolutely will be. As much as the work around science communication, around vaccinations and things like that were eventually, you know, essentially fringe a couple decades ago because people were like, why would you not take this? And it was now it's like very mainstream. It's like, how are we going to speak to people who are worried? You know, and it's it's an entire field of, of operations of communication. The work that Dr. Susie Burke's doing around, for example, raising kids in a world altered by climate change or psychological first aid for people who've been affected by natural disasters caused by climate change or just dealing dealing with the uncertainty that climate change will bring upon our community. Right now, it's not exactly super-duper mainstream stuff, but the work she's doing is groundbreaking and is brilliant, and I'm so grateful she came on the show. SusieBurke.com.au, S-U-S-I-E-B-U-R-K-E.com.au is where you can find her. Thanks for listening to the show. Back here on Thursday with Jimmy for Idle Australians, and I'll be here on Friday to talk to you again. Send us your email at gmail.com if you need anything. Until now and then, sleep well, please, and dream of beautiful things.